Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a typed outline of today's message, you can go to the show notes or the details page of your podcast platform. Today we continue on in our Revelation series called God Wins, and today we look at love letters to the bride. I look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And now, here's Tom Claiborne with his message called Love Letters to the Bride. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 2 and 3. Again, we're in the third message in our series, God Wins. And today we are looking at chapters 2 and 3. Now, I know there's been times in the past where I've done an entire series of seven messages on, uh, from these two chapters because it's seven different letters, and that can easily be done. But in this particular series, we're kind of doing an overview so we can continue on with the rest of the uh, book. And also, I urge you to get your uh, sermon notes page out uh, on your bulletin so you can follow along and fill those things in. And then we're going to consider love letters to the bride. Mark Moore, in his devotional study of the book of Revelation, makes this intriguing observation. Now listen carefully, because this might catch you off guard. He said, God has a pretty poor track record with women. (laughs) Now if you're like me, you hear that statement, uh, God has a pretty poor track record with women, and you go, what? (laughs) But as he continues on, it becomes obvious that it's not an attack on God nor on women in general. When he makes that statement, he's talking about some of the unfaithful fiancés that God has had down through the centuries. Consider this. In the Old Testament, God was betrothed. He was engaged, in a sense, to the nation of Israel by his own loving choice, but she often acted... (laughs) like an adulterer or even a prostitute. And that we read that in Jeremiah 2. We read that in Ezekiel 16. We read that in Hosea chapter 2. Then in the New Testament, God chose the church to be Jesus' bride. So James 4.4 tells us that we are adulterous when we put other things, love other things more than God. You see, the problem is not God. But it's us people whom God loves so much and wants, so, wants us to be so close to Him. So in Revelation 2 and 3, God has a chat with His bride, the church. To be more clear, He wrote seven letters to seven actual congregations located in Asia Minor, what's now modern Turkey. And He likely, I think, chose seven churches for this symbolic uh, uh, significance of that number. So I'm going to put a map up here. I don't know how well you can see it, but in that, here's my pointer. In this dark area right in here, Asia Minor, is where these seven cities were located, and each of them had a church uh, as part of the Bride of Christ. Now, next picture zooms in a little bit more. Those of you closer can see the cities we're going to be reading about, Pergamum, Thyatira, and all these, right in this area. So God is writing letters, Jesus is writing letters to actual churches in that area. And since all churches 
over the past 2,000 years have struggled with many of the same issues, just like today, these seven letters become letters to all congregations throughout the ages, including Bethlehem right now. Now these may be considered, in a sense, the very first form letters, <laughs> because they all follow the same format with the specific details changing from church to church. Now, if you picked up one of the papers off the uh, sign-up counter this morning, um, there's a paper that should look like this, and it's a chart that goes with today's message that you can follow up on later on. But on, on at one point on that chart, uh, and we'll put a little bit of it up here, there are certain characteristics that appear in every one of these seven letters. First of all, there's a greeting to the angel of the church in, and it names the city. Then there's a vivid description of Jesus Christ, and these are all borrowed from chapter 1, this section we saw last Sunday. Then there's a message of praise and or condemnation to each church according to its particular situation. Then there's a warning or a threat about what to do about their condition. Then there's a promise to those who overcome. And finally, there's an admonition to hear and heed the Spirit's message with the words that are on the front of your bulletin this morning. So this is relevant stuff in Revelation 2 and 3. These are ongoing issues in churches just like they were then. So in Revelation 2 and 3, we learned valuable lessons about Jesus and about the devil and about the church and about ourselves. But first of all, and if you're following your outline, this is your first main point, there are facts about Jesus Christ. And this was our entire focus last Sunday from chapter 1. There are incredible images of Jesus that we first saw in chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. And in each letter, Jesus borrows one of those images to portray himself in, in each letter to the churches. And through that, we learn three things about Jesus. First of all, that Jesus knows what's happening. Jesus knows what's happening. If you were to ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, what's happening? <laughs> he can answer you with complete awareness and absolute truth because Jesus knows what's going on in any life and in any church. I love the image when John, this is John, the friend of Jesus, has this appearance long after Jesus has left to go back to heaven. Jesus appears to John in Acts 1.12. We saw this last week. John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is his friend Jesus who's in a much more amazing image here. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Well, guess who? Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his, ch his chest. And then down in verse 20, it tells what these seven lampstands are. It says, The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the image of Jesus standing among these lampstands is an image of Jesus standing among his people. And he's saying, I know exactly what's going on in your congregation. I know exactly what's going on. A Sunday school teacher several years ago challenged her uh, young students to go home that afternoon and write a letter to God. Just tell God whatever you want to tell him. Well, one little boy, when he brings it back the next week, uh, reads his letter and it said this, Dear God, we had a good time at church today. Wish you could have been there. Well, I've got news for the little boy. Uh, God was there, and God saw everything. So let's try to imagine, okay, if we're a member of one of these seven churches, 
And again, this is before email, this is before snail mail even. Uh, and literally, these letters would have been transferred uh, from John or Paul or whoever wrote one of these epistles. It would be taken as a scroll by a messenger to a church, and it would be read out loud to that congregation. So try to imagine being a part of one of those congregations, and a messenger arrives with one of these letters. And listen how they, every one of them opens up. Chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's Jesus. And then it says this, I know your deeds. And you can go through all seven letters, and to every one of them, Jesus says, I know what's going on in your church. I know your deeds. So that's kind of a chilling reminder. Jesus says, I know all the attitudes, I know all the actions, I know what you're failing to do, I know what you're doing, I see it all. But that's also kind of a thrilling reminder that Jesus is among his people. See, Jesus knows exactly what's going on at Bethlehem. We can't fake him out, we can't hide things, and neither is he going to just ignore it. And that's true of any church. So Jesus knows if our worship is genuine, and he knows if we're simply going through the motions. Jesus knows if there's love and unity in this church or any church, but he also knows those who cause division. He sees it. Jesus knows when you or I forgive somebody, and he also knows when we hold a petty grudge. Jesus knows when we give sacrificially, and he knows when we're selfish. Jesus knows when our faith is strong and real, and he knows when our faith is wavering. He knows uh, when studying the Bible is a high priority to a person or a church, and he also knows when we take it lightly. He knows when we're actively serving him, and he knows when we're sitting back waiting for someone else to serve <laughs> or to do everything. And Jesus knows when we love his truth, and he also knows when you or I or any church does things that are not biblical. Jesus knows. But there's something else we learn about Jesus, and this makes that one more intimidating, and that is, <laughs> it's very clear in Revelation, he is Lord he is Lord. I want to reread these image, this image of him, and we'll pick up in verse 14. We read this last week, and Matt Proctor's really cool comment about this. But look at verse 14. This is Jesus. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And then notice in verse 17, this is John and Jesus, best friends at one time. And this is John seeing a whole new image of Jesus. And it says, or John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's a striking image of Jesus. In each one of these letters in Revelation 2 and 3, one of those images that I just read is in each one of the letters. And the point is that Jesus has authority and power to say what he's about to say in the, each of those letters and to do what he promises because he is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is the authority. He is the boss. He is the head of the church. He, he's the main man. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. 
But also we learn one other thing about Jesus in these two chapters in the seven letters, and that is that he is returning. And it's striking to me that in each one of those, well, except one of them, it, 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 for some reason it doesn't mention this, but in the church to Ephesus, he says, I will come. To the church in Pergamum, he says, I will soon come to you. In Thyatira, he says, hold on until I come. Sardis, he says, I will come like a thief. To the church in Philadelphia, he says, I am coming soon. To the church in Laodicea, he says, I will come in. As we saw last week in chapter 1, verse 7, in that incredible image, the return of Jesus will be the height of joy and glory for those who are prepared for him to come. But for those who are not prepared, it will be a time of terror and anguish, a time of mourning. Revelation 2 and 3 calls us to get to know Jesus Christ and to take him seriously. So let me remind us of something. And I say this periodically here at Bethlehem. I'm going to put this up here. We, we here are the Bethlehem Church of Christ. Of Christ. That's more important than the Bethlehem part or the church part. We are the Bethlehem Church of Christ because he is Lord over this church and he is the sole owner and we should never forget that. So we learn some important things about Jesus in these two chapters. But the second main point on your outline, we learn something else. There is affirmation and correction and warning for Jesus' church. You see, God wants to encourage and strengthen his church. God is sending these letters because he cares about his church. That's why I've called this love letters to the bride. That's why he's writing these letters. And he praises good things and all the good things he sees in these churches. To the church at Ephesus, he praises their hard work and their perseverance. To the church in Smyrna, he praises their courageous suffering. He praises the faithful witness of those in, per, in Pergamum. He, he praises the growing devotion in Thyatira and the, the steadfast endurance in Philadelphia. But he also does something very, very loving. He corrects them when necessary. Just like a loving parent who corrects their wayward child. He corrects them where necessary. Mary Crowley put it this way. He loves us just as we are and loves us too much to leave us as we are. See, the love of Jesus demands that he looks at my life and says, Tom, why don't you work on this? Right over here. He loves us enough to do that. See, God wants to bring out the best in his imperfect bride, the church. I love the image in Ephesians 5 where it, it, it compares Jesus and the church to the husband and wife. And there's a lot of parallels. But look, look at these verses, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now notice this part. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. He washes us with the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. See, the love of Christ demands that he looks at the Bethlehem Church of Christ and is always trying to find things here to help us improve and to help us be a more pure bride for him. Randy Pausch, a few years ago, wrote a book during the months in which he knew he was dying. It was called The Last Lecture. And I like this comment he made among a bunch of other amazing things. He says, when you're screwing up 
and nobody says anything to you anymore, that means they've given up on you. When you're screwing up and nobody says anything to you anymore, that means they've given up on you. But when they care, of course, they lovingly correct us. See, God loves us enough to tell us to stop certain things and he encourages us to change because he loves us. And that's important because Jesus understands the next point on our outline. That's point B under number two. The devil, here where God wants to love and protect and support and correct and make his church better, the devil wants to destroy the church. The devil wants to destroy the church. You know, I am not shocked when problems arise in a church. That's, that's not surprising to me. I don't care if it's this church or any other church. And I am not shocked when bad things happen in a church. And there's two reasons for that. Number one, this church, like every other church, is made up of imperfect people. So junk is going to happen. And attitudes are going to be out of whack. But there's another reason I'm not shocked. And that's because there is an enemy out there whose very mission, whose very passion is to attack Jesus' bride, the church. So there will be problems in any church. There will be issues. And there'll be things Jesus doesn't like seeing. You see, the devil knows he cannot defeat God, so he tries to break God's heart by destroying us people that God loves so much. That's the only way he can get back at God and hurt God. So the devil keeps reappearing in these seven letters. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. It says, I know your afflictions. He writes to this one church. And your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. On down to verse 13. It says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. He says, you did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Again and again, Satan appears in these seven letters. He's very real, and he loves destroying churches. But here's the scary truth. Satan often works his best from within a church. More on that in a minute. So God warns us because he wants to protect and bless his church. And therefore, in Revelation 2 and 3, God offers a third main thing on your outline, and that is he offers challenges for us. Individually and as a congregation. Here's the first challenge, point A. We should pay attention to God. These letters are saying very strongly to you and me today, we need to pay attention to God. There's an important recurring phrase at the end of each letter, and it's on the front of your bulletin this morning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, pay attention to God. So let's pay attention to God's warnings. Let's pay attention to God's truth. Let's watch out for false teachings. Let's pay attention to God when we worship. Let's make sure that he remains the primary focus. See, one of those congregations did not do that. It's fascinating to me in the first letter to the church at Ephesus, in chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, he commends some amazing things. Listen how cool this church sounds. 
Verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. He's saying there's some good stuff in your church. But then he says this. Um, well, he goes on. He says, you have pers persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And then verse 4, he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. In other words, they were doing a lot of really good religious things, but they had let God slip off the throne of their life. And God says, that has to change. So we should pay attention to God. But also we learn in these letters that we should be realistic about sin. You see, the devil will use whatever works with you or me at a given time in our life. And that may vary. What God uses to take me down uh, now might not be the same thing he uses to try to take me down five years from now. See, we're in a long-term battle, and the devil routinely changes strategy with churches or with individuals in the church. Let me give you an example. I think there's a lie that Satan has used and still uses to this day with non-Christians. He tells them, he says, you are too good to go to hell. You are too good to go to hell. You're too good to go to hell. You're a pretty good person. You're a pretty good person. And then once a, a person starts studying, looking at their life honestly, starts studying the Bible, they read about sin, they realize, I'm a sinner. You know, and I can't save myself. My sin separates me from God. So then when a person figures that out, then Satan changes the lie and says, you're too bad to go to heaven, though. Yeah, you're right. You are a sinner. You're a scumbag. And your sin has separated from God, you from God, and you are too bad to go to heaven. You see, Satan is always changing strategies depending on where we are in our relationship with him. And if you look in these letters, he uses different methods in the seven congregations. One method he uses, and this is very prominent, we talked about this in the first message in the series, is persecution. This was a time of incredible, deep, uh, intense persecution. That's my orange band I've been wearing for four years. <laughs> it has nothing to do with Bengals. <laughs> it has to do with remembering persecuted Christians. Persecution was very rampant at this time, and especially in a couple of these churches. There was fear and intimidation that Satan was using in the form of beatings or torture or the loss of a job because of someone's faith or not being sold certain products because they were a Christian or being burned alive or being fed alive to wild beasts. That was happening in at least two of these churches. But there was another method that Satan used. We see it in chapter 2, verse 14, and that's immorality. When persecution didn't phase some of these churches, Satan says, okay, I'll try a whole different approach, sexual immorality. And it's interesting, in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. How many of you recognize the name Balaam from the Old Testament? Raise your hand. All right, several of you. Balaam was a guy that appears in Numbers chapter 22 to 24. He's the guy that had the donkey that God allowed to talk to him. That really strange, cool story. And Balaam looks good in, in Numbers 22, 23, 24 because someone had hired him to go curse the nation of Israel, the people of God, and when he would open his mouth, all that would come out was blessing on the people of Israel. So Satan goes, oh, well, that didn't work. So in chapter 25, and then again in chapter 31 in the book of Numbers, we read that he used Balaam to, to then entice the people of God to sexual immorality, and that one worked. 
If something, one of Satan's attempts in our life does not work, he'll find something else. And if one thing doesn't work to try to, to break up a church, he'll try something else. So Satan used that tactic of sexual immorality in the church at Pergamum and the church at Thyatira. And he's using it in a lot of American churches today. Sexual immorality. Another one he uses, this is referred to in the Pergamum letter, false teaching. He's still using that one. Another one he uses, with Ephesus I referred to this, was confused priorities. If sexual immorality didn't work and persecution didn't work, how about I'll mess up their priorities? I'll get them to focus on a whole bunch of other things. That's happening in a lot of American churches today. And then he tries with the church in Sardis something totally different. Complacency. Listen how Sardis chapter 3 starts out. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a, listen to this, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So apparently, Satan did not have to use persecution with the church in Sardis. He did not have to use sexual immorality or false teaching. They had simply become a nice, decent, Bible-believing church that simply went to sleep and died. If Satan's not messing with the church and trying to mess things up, it's probably because he thinks, well, they're dead anyway. I don't need to mess with them. See, we need to be realistic and on guard about Satan's varying methods. He used them in A.D. 90, he used them in A.D. 700, he used them in A.D. 1250 and during the Reformation period in the 1500s, and Satan uses many of the same things today in churches and with church people. But let's remember, whichever method Satan uses, sin has consequences. I read a story, and this was, goes back quite a few years when things were cheaper and before the latest inflation uh, bump. <laughs> But it was called the most expensive Burger King meal in history. And some people refer to it as the most expensive meal in history. What happened was this guy named George Bean out in Palmdale, California, went through a drive-thru at Burger King. And the cashier, the bill was actually $4.33. As you can see, it's been a few years. <laughs> anyway, he paid with his debit card, but she had punched in the numbers, 433, and then she forgot she had punched them in, so she punched them in again. So it created a total bill of $4,334.33 for his little Burger King order. The electronic change went through to George's checking account and wiped his checking account out. And it's been referred to, as I said, as the most expensive meal in history. But that's not true. Because in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve ate some forbidden fruit. They sinned, and it turned out to be extremely, <laughs> extremely costly. It cost them their home in the Garden of Eden. They were kicked out. It cost them their intimate relationship with each other, and it separated them from God. And those costs have been passed down to you and me through the human race ever since the Garden of Eden. Sin has consequences. And there's a fascinating warning in chapter 2 when it talks about the sexual immorality in the church at Thyatira. And it refers to a Jezebel, and I think it's a symbolic name, but anyway, in verse 20, it says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. 
By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. And now listen to what's going to happen. Verse 22, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. God is basically saying, okay, she's going to be punished for her sin, and if you stay in bed with her, you're going to burn when she burns. Young people, let me remind you, be very careful who you hang around with or who you ride with or who you date. And I say the same thing to those of us who are older. Because sin has consequences, and who we hang around with makes a world of difference. Let's be realistic about the destructiveness of sin. But another challenge we have in these letters is your point C. We should repent when necessary. In other words, when God has shown you or me something, and what he's shown me to change may not be the same thing he's shown you to change, but we should repent when necessary. We read about a lot of fakeness and hypocrisy in Revelation 2 and 3. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 2, talks about those who claim to be apostles, but they're really not. Chapters 2, uh, or verse 2, 2, 9 and 3, 9, talk about those who claim to be God's people, but they really weren't. Chapter 3, verse 1, talks about those who appear to be alive, but they're really dead. Chapter 3, verse 17, were the Laodiceans who claimed to have all, everything together in their life, but they did not. Hypocrisy. There was hypocrisy in these churches. Someone has said that a hypocrite is a person who isn't their self on Sundays. And you think about that one. They aren't their selves on Sunday. The real person is all the other days when they're doing these other things. When they're here, they're faking it. See, God's solution to hypocrisy and sin is one word, repent, repent. Now let me tell you, this R word, repent, is not popular anymore, even in some churches, even in some churches. The R word's not popular. Reminded about a boy in school one year that uh, had trouble pronouncing the letter R. So his teacher gave him an exercise. She says, I'm going to give you a sentence, and I want you to go home and just say this over and over and over again, because you need to learn how to say your R's. So here was a sentence she gave me to practice at home. Robert gave Richard a wrap on the rib for roasting the rabbit so rare. <laughs> so this boy's supposed to go home and say that over and over. Robert gave Richard a wrap on the rib for roasting the rabbit so rare. So he comes back to the class the next time, and the teacher says, I want you to say this sentence for me in an hour. And he goes, okay. Bob gave Dick a poke in the side for not cooking the bunny enough. He had trouble saying R's, so he decided just to avoid them altogether, the R word. <laughs> and I know a lot of Christians, and there are a lot of churches in America today who are avoiding the R word, repentance, way too much. Please notice, repent and repentance fill these seven letters. Matter of fact, Jesus likes the word repent. Jesus likes the concept of repentance. Jesus' first recorded sermon in the Bible in Mark 1 is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is really fond of the idea of repentance. Chapter 2, verse 5, notice what he says to the church at Ephesus. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Chapter 2, verse 16. 
It says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Chapter, verses 21 and 22, uh, we already read, re repenting of the immorality. And you can go all through the book. Every time he confronts something in the church, he says, you need to repent of this. You need to repent of this. Sounds important, doesn't it? Repent was also central to the earliest Christian preaching. In Acts 2, verse 38, is that famous verse we all know so well. When asked what they should do about their sin, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Sometimes we skip to the be baptized part. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The two promises at the end will not be true without repentance. Then a chapter later in, in, in Chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. We want refreshing. It involves repentance at times in our lives. And I love the story in Acts chapter 19 where there was a revival going on and people decided they were going to get rid of some things that kept, the, that kept them away from God. And notice what they do. They act out their repentance. It says, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. You're ready to see some evidence of real repentance. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Folks, when we truly repent there will be a noticeable difference in our life. And there's something wrong if people can't see a change in our life. Maybe there really isn't repentance. A lady confessed, mother confessed this. She says, when I was adding the finishing touches to my makeup one morning, my preschooler came in. And the preschooler asked, what does that stuff do? To which she replies, all of these are to make mommy pretty. He continued washing her, and when she got done and started putting her makeup away, he goes, when does it start to work? <laughs> I bet he didn't get extra cake that day. <laughs> you see, when we truly repent, people should not look at our life and ask, hey, when is this God thing going to start working in your life? I can't see any difference. When's the God thing going to start changing you? Revelation 2 and 3 reminds us that the solution to most of life's and society's problems is repentance. And the solution to America's problems right now is repentance. <laughs> but there's a last challenge for us in these letters, and that is we should be faithful no matter what happens. In other words, even in the direst of situations, we need to remain faithful. And the church in Smyrna in chapter 2 was faithful. Look what it says in verses 9 and 10. We read part of this earlier, and I'm going to finish it this time. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. And he tells them this, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. And he says this, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
In other words, he's saying, be faithful to death. In other words, until you quit breathing and die. But also it means, even if it, it, it gets you killed, even if it gets you killed, you remain faithful. Also, verse 13 is very similar. He commends the church at Pergamum. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. He's saying, one of your, one of your church family was killed for his faith, but you've remained faithful. Folks, being faithful also means we keep growing and improving I love verse 19 of chapter 2, where he says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance. And here it is. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. In other words, we keep growing and we keep improving. Here's a checkup time for each of us. Are you doing more for God than you were a year ago? Are you reading the Bible more consistently than you were a year ago? Are you more consistent in your worship attendance than you were a year ago? Are you more patient than you were a year ago? Are you more holy? Are you more forgiving? Are you helping others more than you were a year ago? Are you speaking up for Jesus in other settings and biblical principles more than you did a year ago? He commends them. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. God also offers us some promises if we're faithful. You notice that every single one of these has a promise attached. Chapter 2, verse 7. After the he who has an ears, let him hear. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Chapter 2, verse 11. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a, a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Verse 26. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. Chapter 3, verse 12, Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will, I, will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him a new name. And verse 21, finally, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on my throne. Folks, write this sentence in at the, toward the bottom of your page. The promises of God are for those who overcome. The promises of God, of God are for those who overcome. And those promises must have emboldened and encouraged these persecuted believers to know there was a promise out there during all their suffering. And these promises should embolden and encourage us. So I'm going to ask you this morning, are you an overcomer? Are you an overcomer? There is an interesting image of Jesus in Revelation 3.20. You've heard it before. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. There have been a number of paintings that have been done from that chapter, that verse, through the ages. We're going to put one of them up here. 
And I don't know how well you can see it, but there are numbers that they vary, all the different paintings, but in every single one of the paintings, you'll notice Jesus is knocking on a door and there's never on any of these pictures a doorknob or a door handle on the outside because the point from Revelation 3.20 is we have to open up the door from the inside. Jesus isn't going to force his way in. And that's why he says in this verse, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. See, the choice is ours to open the door for Jesus. And Jesus may be knocking on your door this morning, and maybe in your case, it's to wake you up. He may be knocking on your door, so you'll put him first. You used to put him first, but you don't anymore. It's work, it's, it's family, it's, it's something else that you're putting ahead of God. Jesus may be knocking on your door this morning, so you'll listen to him more. Jesus may be knocking on your door, so you'll take him more seriously. He may be knocking on your door, so you'll repent of a specific sin he keeps reminding you of over and over, month after month, and you keep saying, well, I'm going to deal with this someday. Jesus may be knocking on your door, so you'll begin praying more consistently and more intensely. He's saying, I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. He may be knocking on your door, so you'll accept him as your Lord and Savior and be baptized. There's one more statement at the bottom of your page, and it's quite simple. It's time to open the door. See, God, as I said in my title, God has written you a love letter. He has written you a love letter. And the question is, how will you respond? time for us to respond to the love letter and to let Jesus come into whatever area of our life. Because with a lot of us, it's like, you know, we're Christians. We've already let him in our life. Um, but there's an area we're still holding back from him. Well, maybe this morning's the time to say, okay, nothing's off limits. I'm letting him control the whole house, the whole life, every aspect of my life. Let's think about where we are with him. Let's think about what door we need to open for him because he has written us a love letter and he's waiting for a response that we can give him right now. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's word and follow his son, Jesus Christ.